Tensions with Turkey, but is the country with NATO's second biggest army really thinking of walking away? And after another bloody week in Afghanistan, should we have stayed longer? From a military perspective, we absolutely left too soon. We left the Afghan security forces with uh, more than they could handle, and I think we saw the catastrophic results. Hello, this is James Hurst in for Kate Jabot. Turkey and the United States are NATO allies. On paper, at least, you certainly wouldn't be able to tell by looking at the rhetoric emerging from Washington and Ankara in recent days. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has even warned the US he could start looking for new friends. On the one hand, you're a strategic partner. On the other, you shoot yourself in the foot. On the one hand, you are a partner with us in Afghanistan when everybody else was leaving. You are a partner with us in Somalia. You are a partner in NATO. And on the other hand, you stab your ally in the back. Is this acceptable? This row has been brewing for a long time. Nominally, it's about Turkey's detention of one person and Washington's refusal to extradite another. But US economic sanctions on Turkey now seem to have brought this to a head. Well, the BBC's Mark Lowen has been following the story from Istanbul and he joins me now. Uh, Mark, Turkey's currency slumped in value after the US imposed new tariffs. That seems to have infuriated the Turkish president. He warned their partnership could be in jeopardy. Is that just words or is he serious? I think that what he's doing is trying to talk to his nationalist support base here, James, uh, that loves the idea of Turkey standing up to the U.S., Turkey standing up to the West. Uh, there is This is a nation that is addicted to conspiracy theories, that has long been fed stories that, uh, that external powers are trying to carve up Turkey uh, from kind of the Gallipoli campaign uh, back at the end, you know, end of the First World War onwards. Um, and, and, and they see their president as, as their saviour. That's certainly the, his, his support base. So that's the kind of rhetoric that he is using. But um, will it translate into action? Well, Turkey's uh, biggest foreign investors by far are uh, Western countries, the Netherlands, Germany, uh, Britain, the US, etc. It has this. It's been a NATO, uh, a NATO member since 1952, which has anchored it to the West. Um, so it's not going to walk away, but uh, it, is trying, it is pivoting, I think. There is a geopolitical realignment in this country. It is getting closer to Russia. It is getting closer to uh, the Gulf countries. And I think that that is really the overarching issue in all of this. Yes, we're talking about boycotts and economic rows and political disputes. But the, but, the, but the fundamental theme running under all of this is that Turkey's ties with the West are loosening and that it is getting closer and, and further towards Russia's sphere. And it's not just about this detention and extradition row. I mean, we've seen the US and uh, Turkey at odds over Syria and the role of the Kurds. We've seen uh, the blocking of the sale of F-35 fighter jets to Turkey. Uh, Is that that pivot inevitable now? I think there are so many issues uh, f- because due to which Turkey and the U.S. are at each other's throats. Yes, about Syria, um, where you know the U.S. backs the Kurdish forces in Syria that Turkey sees as terrorists. Um, there is this row over the uh, Turkish cleric who lives in the U.S., who Turkey blames for orchestrating the failed military coup here two years ago, and Turkey wants him extradited, and, and the U.S. is not extraditing him. Uh, they are on. They, they they differ over Iran and and other regional issues. Um, but I think that. 
you know, ultimately, um, uh, that it has really come to a head this year. Uh, you, you mentioned the F-35s. The U.S. is possibly going to block selling F-35s to Turkey uh, because of the row. Turkey has bought um, a Russian-made S-400 missile defense shield, which, you know, as to Turkey being the second largest army in NATO, uh, goes against the NATO military alliance buying from Russia. Um, so there, there are a lot of issues for this and, and, and uh, behind Turkey's pivot. And, and uh, you know, An- Ankara says it doesn't need to choose between between partners. It can be it can have one arm towards the West and one arm towards Russia. But at the moment, it seems that the arm towards Moscow and the arm towards the Gulf is certainly kind of more outstretched than the one towards the West. And, and that is a real concern for uh, Western countries that need a stable Turkey, a country that borders Syria and Iraq. It was previously the anchor of stability in the volatile Middle East, uh, but it is rapidly losing that reputation and it is rapidly becoming an, an ever more authoritarian, um, a difficult and angry uh, partner for the West. And, in the, and I'm sure, sure it, it, it will raise some flags at NATO headquarters in Brussels. Stay with us, Mark, but I just want to... to play at this moment uh, the, the words uh, from earlier this week of the, a ter- former Turkish ambassador to NATO, Onya Oman, who insists Turkey walking away from NATO, despite the, 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 the rhetoric, is not on the cards. Nobody thinks about leaving NATO, but President Trump's signing the decree which suspends the delivery of F-35 aircraft to Turkey. This decision of America will damage Turkey's security interests and also will damage NATO. We want to improve our relations with uh, Russia as we, we want to improve our relations with other countries. But it doesn't mean that we have uh, identical views with Russia. It doesn't mean that we are shifting our alliance from NATO to Russia. One should not over-exaggerate these developments. I'm sure that we will find a solution uh, to our problem with America. Well, let's bring in also our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Christopher, how concerned do you think they are at NATO headquarters at the moment about these strained relations? I think there, I think there will be a concern that it's going on but not what is going on. Um, I think we have to put some perspective in here, and that is that the Middle East, which has virtually been at war since its foundation in its modern states, you know, from the 1930s onwards, um, it, it has been a nation where everybody settled down to the alliances which we thought we had. During the past few years, and so you've got the, the whole thing with, with the Gulf states, with, with Iraq, with, with Syria, Alliances are changing, but that doesn't mean to say other old alliances are being abandoned. And I think it's very important to realize that you don't have to be exclusively in an alliance, let's say, let's say Turkey with, with, with Iraq or who it happens to, you happen to choose at the same time. And so let's not, let's not get too excited about what is going on. But why it's going on is the most important thing. Uh, back to Mark Lowen in Istanbul. Uh, Mark, Syria is a huge problem for Turkey. Russia seems to be playing the absolute pivotal role uh, at the moment. Uh, does it make more sense for Turkey to partner with them th- than the US? I think the reason why there is a growing warmth between Ankara and Moscow is that 
that is a partnership where Russia does not judge Turkey on its human rights record, which is rapidly declining, on its, the state of its democracy, which is rapidly declining. And it is really very much a kind of, um, they, they need each other, Russia and Turkey, as, as their alliances with other countries um, goes downhill. Uh, Turkey is, is constantly lambasted and criticized by the European Union and the US with, with a lot of uh, reason behind that, um, given the state of, of democracy in this country. And uh, I, I would say Turkey's relationship with the West is becoming increasingly transactional, while its relationship with Russia is becoming more kind of, um, they are sort of almost emotionally strategic. More, more, yeah, strategic, definitely, but also there is a sort of more of an emotional bond now. They feel, they feel that these are two, they're two strongmen leaders, Putin and Erdogan. Uh, they get on well. Uh, Russia is building a nuclear power plant here in Turkey. Uh, they are cooperating in Syria, even though they are on opposite sides of the war. So, yes, I, I would say, um, you know, the warmth that you see now, the personal warmth between uh, Erdogan and Putin, you don't see that replicated between uh, Erdogan and Western leaders on the whole, even though there was a, a brief honeymoon period with Trump, which has, which has rapidly gone out of the window. Uh, I mean, when President Erdogan is in Brussels, standing next to Angela Merkel of Germany or something, he looks really like a fish out of water to some extent. When he welcomes Vladimir Putin to Ankara, um, you know, they, they don't have that, they, they have the same kind of feelings about free press, they have the same feelings about democracy, and that is what bonds them together, I think. Okay, Mark Lowen in Istanbul, thank you for your time and thoughts today. Still ahead, a warning about the potential for conflict in the Arctic Circle. We have to be better prepared in terms of the personnel and the training. An area that we were once safe from as an area of attack is now opening up and becoming an area of vulnerability. It has been a particularly bloody week in Afghanistan. Taliban militants have now left the strategically vital city of Ghazni, but not before a five-day battle that saw close to 150 members of the Afghan security forces and perhaps as many civilians killed. On top of the slaughter of dozens of students in Kabul, it's been an audacious reminder of the Taliban's resurgence in much of Afghanistan. It is now nearly four years since the last British personnel left Camp Bastion in Helmand for years, the UK's primary base in Afghanistan. For SITREP, Simon Newton has returned to Bastion now under the control of Afghan forces. From the air, you can still see the sheer scale of Bastion, this military city that once housed 30,000 people and was the powerhouse of Britain's war in Afghanistan. I'm flying in from Kabul on a small propeller plane laid on by the US Air Force. I'm the only passenger. My pilot's a reservist, a member of the National Guard. At home, he flies Airbus A320s for Delta Airlines. This, he tells me, is rather different. I'm coming to Helmand for two reasons. To make a film about a contingent of US Marines now based here. Eight on three, charge three. But also to see what's left of Camp Bastion four years on from the UK's departure. The Marines returned last April to help train the battered Afghan army, or ANA. Towns well known to British troops, Musakala, Sangin and Nadali, had already fallen to the Taliban and Helmand's capital, Lashkagar, was in danger of going the same way. Brigadier General Ben Watson is the man in charge of the Marines here, and he explained how close things got. The ANSAF had made, uh, or they had lost significant territory uh, over the previous couple of years since the coalition left in, uh, in 2014. And by the spring of, uh, of 2017, Lashkar Gah was on the verge of falling to the Taliban. I mean, from inside the city, 
which is adjacent to the Hellman River. You could hear gunfire on a regular basis just on the immediate uh, far side of the river. I'd say most importantly, the ANSAF had lost confidence at that point. Uh, they still had some capacity, but they were on the defensive, and they had not had any significant tactical victories against the Taliban in some time. You'll be evaluated during your practical application. The U.S. soldiers came to advise and assist, not fight. And inside hot classrooms at the regional training center, I found American troops teaching Afghan soldiers how to use M16 assault rifles and light machine guns. Nearly 7,000 ANA and police were killed in 2016 alone. The figures got so bad, the government in Kabul stopped releasing casualty figures. I met Sergeant Mohammed Wali. Now an instructor at the centre, he told me he lost several comrades in battles with the Taliban. It's been uh, some experiences that uh, I lost some of my colleagues. We were ambushed and I lost some of my colleagues. I was injured myself and we also lost some of the injured soldiers and uh, NCOs and officers who were fighting against the Taliban alongside with me. The Marines offered to take me for a drive around what was Bastion, but the wheel, a 19-year-old from Tennessee, he was still in school when this place closed. We go in search of the old BFBS studios in Bastion 2. I know they were shipped out, but I wonder if something might be left. There's nothing. Bar a few empty buildings, the whole site is now a flat expanse of desert. Bastion 1 has survived better. A few of the hundreds of tents that were here remain. In one I find a huge industrial washing machine still plumbed in. The air conditioners that used to keep them cool in the sweltering heat of Helmand are also still here. A few minutes away, another historic part of Bastion, the Roll Free Hospital which treated so many British, American and Afghan troops. For a while, this was the number one trauma centre in the world. Now it's dark and dusty, what looked like bullet holes through some of the doors. Mattresses discarded in what was the ambulance bay. Nearby, there's an empty coffee shop once used by contractors. All the fittings have been ripped out and strangely on the floor I find a pile of unused missed cards. The labels placed on injured troops on the battlefield so medics can quickly assess and treat them. The British and American departure from here in 2014 was described as a tactical withdrawal. At the time many military leaders spoke optimistically about the Afghans, how they'd be able to take on the Taliban. But it didn't turn out that way. So did the Brigadier General believe we left Helmand too soon? As, as a military officer, I do. I mean, I know those are your, normally political decisions, uh, and so I won't attempt to, you know, to, to break that apart, you know, in this kind of forum. But from a military perspective, we absolutely left too soon. We left the Afghan security forces with uh, more than they could handle, and I think we saw the catastrophic results uh, over the next year or two, and that's what we've been battling to help them take back ever since. After hours of looking, I quite literally found a concrete reminder of Bastion, a 10-foot blast wall, probably from Bastion's flight line, adorned with a mural dedicated to the MERT, the medical emergency response team that operated the medevac helicopters that airlifted so many troops from the battlefield. It had been clearly left here on purpose, a lasting memorial to the 454 British troops who came to Bastion but never returned. Simon Newton for SITREP. Helmand in Afghanistan. Simon Newton on what for a, a lot of people is a certain trip down memory lane, but then we look at what's been going on in Afghanistan uh, in the years since British forces left, in the, in the last few days, 17 years since it started. There's still a sense, isn't there, Christopher, that it 
it's never going to end, do you think? Well, I first I first studied as an undergraduate in 1832. I wasn't an undergraduate in 1832. I might just as well be. And that's where the whole thing started. And the, and the, and the decisions that were taken then are the decisions that have been taken over the past 10 years, and that's not to be ignored. Let me tell you, it's very, very simple. Um, did we leave Afghanistan too early? The British didn't by themselves, and it wasn't just the British, you know, in spite of all the guys that sort of had to stay behind. Um we left without putting a proper training organization inside that was a big training organization, not just four or five hundred people that can that can you know be the Sandhurst in the desert or whatever yeah. the nonsense was. The second thing we left the Afghan army untrained but without any uh, combat air power I mean so the, they had yeah. no support. In operations, so so, so the and development of an air force has been one thing. I mean, well, still, na- come on, it's it, it's it's still it's still NATO, sort of fly me sort na- of stuff. The NATO Secretary General, I asked this to the NATO Secretary General at, at, at the summit. Um, you know, he said we we did train, we've we we continue well, he's to talking train. Nonsense, isn't he? Okay, but the question I put to him, and and he didn't didn't answer, is at what point do you say okay? This plan is not working. We need a new plan. At what point do you the don't do that in military this? training? I mean, that is a fundamental in military training. You don't think that way. What you do, you, but, you continue But our plan on Afghanistan, what, at what point no, do we say no, you we don't need do a new that plan? in military training. What you do, you, it's, it's like, it's like a, a, a motorway. You sort of shift the lanes as you need to go on. And so you're training in different aspects and you build that up and that's getting ahead of so-and-so. It doesn't time with something else. And, you tra- and, and, and that's, that's the way you're training. I tell you, you look for indicators. And one indicator, for example, this week is that Taliban will no longer guarantee the safety of the Red Cross. Now, that's crossing a line which nobody understood. And last week, they were talking to the Taliban was talking to the Americans about sort of the, the future and peace. There is no future, there is no peace, until you've worked out something quite different, and you can't do that, because the only people that can do this is not the Americans, not the British, it's not the Afghanistan. It is, it is, it is, it is India... It is Pakistan, and it's the Central Asian republics, and it is that is and and Iran. It that is where the future of, Ica- of Afghan lies, it not al- in the Pentagon, and not in the Defence Ministry. It, it, they all say it always comes back to a political solution. Now, as if we don't have enough global trouble spots to worry about, we are now being warned about the risk from the north, the far north. In a report this week, the Commons Defence Subcommittee says Britain must show greater ambition and concentrate more on the developing security threat in the Arctic Circle. The subcommittee was chaired by the Labour MP, Madeleine Moon. It's not just an issue for the United Kingdom, it's also a NATO issue. It means that an area that we were once safe from as an area of attack is now opening up and becoming an area of vulnerability. We know there is a greater use of Russian subs coming through what's called the GUIC gap. That's the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. Now, that's an important gap through which subs need to get into the North Atlantic. Should there ever be a conflict or even a major crisis, to get redeployment from the US and resupplies, they need to come across the North Atlantic. We also have subsurface cables there, which provide us with our communication capabilities. No one's needed to claim ownership of that area. We haven't been training for ice-enabled and cold-weather warfare. So we have to look at that. We have to be better prepared in terms of the personnel and the training. We used to spend 
a lot of money sending thousands of commandos to train in the high north. We now send a few hundred every year. And last year, we took a gap. We saved 2.5 million by not training any commandos in cold weather warfare. We can't afford that level of risk. Our Royal Marines, our amphibious assault ships have got to be available and have got to be trained and have got to be ready to go to the support of our allies whose bases are, are actually the ones that are more likely to be attacked first, such as the Norwegians, such as the Danes, such as the Icelandic capability. We've got to be there and ready and able to go and give that support. Madeleine Moon, who chairs the Commons Defence Subcommittee. Well, let's speak now to Elizabeth Braw, Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Elizabeth Braw, is this a genuine threat? Is it new or, or is it an, an overreaction to, to, to recent tensions with Russia? Well, it's a new. It's not a new threat, uh, but as Mrs. Moon said in in, in uh, the, the previous segment, there it is an increasing threat, and and Russia has been reinstating, uh, rebuilding old Soviet bases in uh, military bases uh, in the Arctic. But if I can also add the threat from China. Now, that's not a military threat, but China is increasing its presence in the Arctic, especially on Greenland. And I think that's something we should worry about in addition to, to the pure military threats. I mean, reading the, the report, essentially a large part of what they're saying is because the ice is receding, there is now a global race to, to take ownership of the natural resources that are there. Is there not a, not a system in which they can be shared out? <laughs> uh, you, one would wish, but uh, there isn't. And I, this development is hugely unfortunate because even during the Cold War, the one area where there was uh, productive cooperation between the blocs was the Arctic. So primarily scientific research, cultural exchange, it happened in the Arctic. And that is fading now. And if I can just go back to what you said about natural resources, that's exactly why China is so keen to, to establish a presence. And of course, uh, the, the receding ice is also leading to better possibilities for, for shipping routes along what's called the Northeast Passage. And uh, so just looking at uh, Chinese investments in Greenland, so for example, we have something, uh, a company called Shenghe Resources, resources which now owns 12.5% of a company called Greenland Minerals and Energy which mines uranium and zinc. Uh, a Hong Kong based company owns the rights to um, an iron um, mine in, in on Greenland and by the way if I could just add last year they even tried to buy a former US naval base uh, on Greenland so it, it yeah. all comes together uh, business and military so activities. You, now you mentioned that for example there is that former US base in Greenland it, it, it's not just about the resources what is, what are the what's the strategic importance of, of having access and keeping access to the Arctic? Well, it is that, that so much will be happening there, uh, so much of world trade, uh, both shipping and, and resources, is located there and could potentially uh, be unlocked if, if the ice keeps melting. And, and of course, whoever gets there first and essentially uh, marks the spot uh, will have the best chances of, of, of essentially uh, ruling uh, the region. And this is a region that nobody has really claimed ownership to before, even though there are a number of countries that, that uh, are, are geographically located there, simply because there wasn't much happening, and it's happening now uh, as a result of climate change. Uh, 
Let's briefly bring yeah. you Christopher. Yeah, Lee. hang on. 80, 89% of uh, world trade is below the latitude of 18, uh, of, of 57, uh, 57 degrees north. Um, what's happening in the, north, in, in the Arctic north is, is access. Access doesn't necessarily... It causes great benefit in commercial terms, but a great benefit in commercial terms quite often produce the most stable areas uh, which are least likely to go to war because it's in everybody's interest normally to keep them open. So I think we've got to be careful. We don't think, oh, you know, the Russians are coming, the Chinese coming, etc., and therefore it's likely to be a war. Briefly, Elizabeth Brawl, this is a balancing act, though, isn't it? Because, you know, it, it, we we have got uh, a, a lot of the world to look at, and as they said, point out, a lot of it is hot and sandy, and that's where we've been focusing, but then that's provided the the, the bigger threat. That's right. And if I can also yeah, just come back to the comment about uh, a war, I don't think a war is likely at all. I think what's likely is that uh, China in particular essentially establishes um, uh, ownership of, of large parts of the Arctic simply by investing there and, and thereby making it uh, inaccessible to the rest of us. And um, in fact, I was looking at a, an old quote here, or not so old, a couple of years ago from a Danish politician who said Greenland may become an appendix to China. And that's a very much a commercial uh, development um, and not a military one, but I think uh, a concerning one nonetheless. Um, so it, it is something that, that we should worry about. And the question is, who should worry about it? And Mrs. Moon said the UK should, and then I absolutely and agree with that. She said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth Brawl, right. thank you very much indeed for your time. Now, this week, the leaders of North and South Korea announced plans for another meeting, the third this year, to be held next month in Pyongyang. The US, meanwhile, is still trying to pursue its own path to denuclearizing the Korean peninsula after Donald Trump's extraordinary meeting with Kim Jong-un back in June. Uh, let's get up to date now with Professor Hazel Smith from the Centre for Korean Studies at SOAS in the University of London. Uh, we don't know, Hazel Smith, the precise agenda for these talks. Uh, the fact they're meeting for a third time presumably Presumably grounds for optimism? Well, we don't know the agenda, but we do know what's been going on over the last several months at the very senior official level, so we're not likely to see much difference. What we'll see here is a strategic reconfirmation uh, of not just warming rhetorical links, but the actual, particularly economic cooperation that's going on between the two. South Korea have been planning for years and they've been able to put this in practice from January when things started warming up between the two, uh, a railway link uh, that they think would bring jobs and an element of prosperity to the north which, and which would bind them into uh, some form of uh, continuing economic cooperation with the south. It would benefit the south because it could export its goods more directly to China. Uh, and these, think, these, these, these ideas are in uh, full technical development between the two. So we will see a confirmation... But of economic cooperation, but, but which President are, Moon sees as the foundation of political engagement. There's still ideas, aren't they? There are still obstacles there as well. No, then they're further than ideas. There's been lots of technical and political discussion going on um, at the ground level, and that discussion also has been going on with United States officials who are fully aware of what's happening. Of course, the dilemma will come when it's time to go ahead if there isn't any further development on the nuclear issue uh, this will inevitably mean that some form of sanctions, uh, some of the sanctions will have to be taken off for that to go ahead. That will be a dilemma for South Korea because it does want to keep on the political pressure, but at the same time it sees economic cooperation as a way towards bringing peace.
Is, is there a desire within Korea to keep this dialogue separate from the the US North Korean talks? Is the, is the South trying no, to hold, ab- absolutely hold not. its own fate? Absolutely not. Because what happened the last time there was a degree of rapprochement between North and South Korea was that the US, for all sorts of reasons, and the, and South Korea uh, were not in very good communication with each other. From day one this time, President Moon, who was involved in the last uh, rapprochement decided that the only way anything would work is if the United States were on board and more than on board being an active participant and it's largely I think thanks to President Moon who's been able to choreograph the relationships between the United States uh, and North Korea in terms of these political, very big political events we've seen but also because President Trump, to be fair to President Trump said right from the beginning during his candidacy that he would sit down with whoever, including Kim Jong-un, necessary, and so had his own agenda in terms of taking uh, t- t- taking this forward. So there's been a concatenation of circumstances which have brought this, this progress that we've seen. Hazel Smith, we, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you for your thoughts. Christopher, finally, mystery satellite. What's going on? OK, last year the Russians launched a satellite into geostationary orbit. That means it's 23,000 miles above, and it sits in one spot looking down. What's it looking at? America. America says it's a mystery satellite because we don't know what it's doing. Uh, well, in fact, what it's probably doing is testing the possibility of, 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 of laser projection. Now, this comes... Uh, just when the Americans saying we ought to have a new Star Wars army. And they, uh, Donald Trump, including the Space Force, central to his new US defence bill. Christopher, thank you for your time this week and to all our other guests. Don't forget you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and you can listen online anytime. See you soon. On digital radio, FM, and satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air, around the world. This is Forces Radio, BFBS. Aretha Franklin.